I was working in the lab late one night when my eyes beheld an eerie sight. For my monster from his slab began to rise, and suddenly, to my surprise, Welcome to the Beekeeper's Corner Podcast. Hello everyone, happy Halloween episode 229, October 31st, 2023, The Warm Way. Hey everyone, Kevin England, excited to come with a special episode, I guess uh, special in the context that it should have been released on Sunday and unfortunately, as they say, things got in the way. So here I am on October 31st in the afternoon recording and producing this episode for you and I'm in that Halloween spirit, as you could tell from the opening. Pretty excited to talk about a couple things. Maybe a less conventional episode. I just have some stuff I need to get out of my head. I'm going to talk about honey super harvesting and storing, maintaining, doing whatever. It's one of those topics at end of season you can't give a recipe for because everybody's operation is a little bit different. And I'm going to talk a little bit about how we're doing it this year, and maybe you can get some insights. It's a little bit late, but maybe you haven't done it yet, and you could use the information. If not, it at least gives you food for thought for management practices for years to come. Secondly, Langstroth the warm way. This is a notion that it came across a long time ago. And given the fact that, as you'll hear, I want to change up some of my bottom boards. And it's the perfect opportunity to put a plan in motion to do something just a little bit differently and see if a reimagined mousetrap is the better way to go. You'll understand when we get there. For topic number three, it's me, it's not you. (laughs) It's funny, I created some honey at some point, creamed honey, and Up until recently, I was scratching my head about why the fact it turned out the way that it did. But all these years later, Sharon came to me with a bottle of honey that was fermented from that same time frame, and the light bulb went off. I'll tell you what my thoughts are, given the evidence that presented. A local hive report, of course, and in closing comments, it's just a rambling mess. You'll see when we get there. The only thing I want to say is thank you for listening. Website is www.bkcorner.org. You'll find the show notes for this show and everything that we've done there, including, I should say, a number of presentations. I want to uh, make a point that I'm going out this Friday to Montrose, Pennsylvania to give a dinner talk and give a presentation, and the presentation will be up on the website you ever wanted to get a peek of what the presentations look like that I give, you can just go to the website, go into the link for presentations and see. I put a lot of effort into them. And I think even though you get to maybe see the talk if somebody records it, or you just get to look at the slides, there's a lot to glean from just browsing through them. And I put a lot of effort into the slides that I present. That being said, one thing I have a favor to ask is if you're listening on 
whatever your favorite podcast app is. Like, subscribe, say thank you, leave a comment. All of those things help us to get recognized for the effort we do and bring more people into the show. And I am eternally grateful for anybody that takes a moment just to say thanks. Jot me off a note, Kevin at bkcorner.org. Tell me how you're doing, what you have going on, what you're thinking about for winter as it comes. Fall, winter, leaves are turning. What are you doing? Making me doing any of that stuff? Send me a note. I'm curious to hear. This is a dialogue between beekeepers. That's the whole premise of the show and hoping that everybody is doing well as we make our way into fall here in New Jersey. With that, let's go ahead and jump right into topic number one. Topic number one in this episode, I call it super storage. It's that time of year, actually, it's a little late, and I talked about this on the last episode, but it continues to surface over the last couple of weeks for me as people have this conversation over and over again. And, you know, what's really fascinating about this topic is so much of it is to personal preference. And like when you read a book and you analyze how people talk about how they keep bees, Uh, What comes to mind is a book I read about a woman who kept bees and she always talked about her specific practices and she, in the elaboration of the story, talked about the rationale. We all have our reasons for what we do and why we do them. What I'm specifically talking about is how do you set your hives to go into winter and if you've listened to this show you know that I have a specific bent about that and ways to go about it. But when you try to describe your rationale and the logic behind it to others, it tends to be murky and not very clear. And you get into all these situations because people keep bees differently than you do. One of the strategies that I try to play is right size the colony to the equipment they're going to overwinter in. It's a cleaner way to say the concept and the rationale. And my entire year of keeping bees is planned around the notion that at some point a normal colony would go through with two deeps, a smaller colony might be collapsed to a single box, a box that started the year late, let's say I did a split late in July and installed a new queen, I wouldn't anticipate that growing to full size during the dearth and across winter. And so from that perspective, I would think that I might overwinter that in a new configuration. And all of these things have a play in my ultimate plan of how I want to eliminate any excess equipment. And why would you have that? Maybe this nucleus box that you put together, the one I was just talking about, got so big that you gave it another box of frames with some foundation, something I like to do, and have them get started in on it. But when the weather breaks and it starts to get cool and you're ready to get them down to winter form, they retract from that box because they go down into the brew chamber where it's built out and you just pop that box off and they're collapsed down to, say, two nuke boxes, easy peasy, ready to go. I know strategically when I set out to put that extra box on that that's what's going to happen in the end. And the same thing occurs if I put honey supers on late in the season hoping to get a fall harvest. 
Now this year, if you've been paying attention, anything but conventional has occurred to me, but I've kind of figured my path through what I'm doing in an alternative way. We went through in September timeframe, early October, and popped all the honey boxes off, and we took care of them in a really unorthodox way, which I'll talk about in a moment. But the goal is always to get the colony down to two deeps in a conventional setup, and that's what I was going to achieve. Fast forward to conversations with, say, my twin brother, who I talked to the last night at the races. His commentary was, did he do the right thing? He's not sure. And the funny thing about it is if you don't have a plan, then what do you do with the resources that are in those boxes? And how do you actually store them? That's a study unto itself. And that's where it comes to everybody has personal preference about how they do this. So I'll begin with the end in mind and not bury the lead and say, my primary thing for a honey box, this is where no brood has been reared, is that I would like to have all of the resources cleared out of the frames and so that it's nothing but honeycomb with empty cells. How do you achieve that? Early in my tenure, I was always told if you put those boxes up and above the inner cover and you leave them on a hive, the bees will pull them down. And if you're a long-time listener of the show and you went back to my experience of saying that doesn't work, it never did for me. Now, there came a time when I gave up on that notion, but given what I know now as I get older and wiser, maybe the thing that I did wrong was, and this is just me riffing, I could take a box with some nectar in it and put it over an empty box that had nothing but foundation and put those two over an inner cover set over a colony. And if you hear me out on this, in warm days, since the bees will explore space, they would eventually go up into the top box, but it would be so far removed from the brood nest, they would either one, consume it, or two, pull it down. Contrast that to what I tried to do, what I was told to do, which is just put them over the inner cover. I think it's not far enough away. The heat coming through the woodenware and the hole in the inner cover allowed the bees to go up in there. And what I found is that bees actually maintained in the space. There were always bees up there. And if I ever wanted to pull that box off and put the roof on and some insulation across the top two inch foam block, I couldn't do it because there were always bees up in there. And I ended up shaking them off, which is kind of what I do now. But they never pulled the resources out because they were living up in that area. Now, I suppose if you left them on there till dead of winter, then the bees would probably vacate the space, but I don't want to leave them on that way. But option number one, put them over the inner cover. Let me make that clear. If you have two deeps and a medium, and the medium has some resources in it. Going back to what the technique instruction was, you would take the 
inner cover and the outer cover off of the hive. You would pull the honey super off. You would take the inner cover and put it back over the two deeps and then redeposit the medium over top of it. What ends up happening here, good, bad, or indifferent, is eventually, if it gets cold enough, and it will, because winter's going to come. That's what they tell us. <laughs> winter's coming. The bees will eventually vacate that space and go down into the nest. But you're left with a box that has residual resources in it. If you go back to what I said a few minutes ago, I don't like that. I want an empty box. I want it to be clean. If you put it, over my new speculation, over a box way up high, then maybe they could see it like rob it out and pull it out until it's empty. I don't know. This is why I don't do this. <laughs> This is what I do is I go through and I pull all those honey supers off and I put them in a cart and I cover them. And I bring them in the house, in the garage, covered space, closed. And I open them up and I go through them. And if I find capped honey, I will spin that out. Could potentially leave it, put a pin in that. But this is what I did this year because of my medical condition. I didn't get this done on time. And so I did something a little bit unusual. And for some beekeepers, this is no bueno, no good. Not the way to do it. But I'm going to tell you what I did and why people wouldn't like it and why I think it worked for me. And it's just the way I go. I pulled all my boxes off. They had a mix. There was some nectar in there. There was some cured nectar close to honey. And there were some capped honey. All three stages of development. I rolled the cart into the garage and left it in there. Now one of the risks of leaving it like that is that pure nectar that hasn't been dried to the point where it can be capped, will ferment in a comb on a warm day. And if you know anything about what we just did, we went through days, it was 80 degrees, 79, 80 degrees. So that is plausible. Now, if it's on the hive being maintained by the bees, this isn't going to happen. But sitting in a cart on a garage, that, that's a potential problem. So on a cool night... Operative word, cool night. I rolled the car down to the yard, far away from the hives, and I let the bees find them. And for that one night bonanza, I let them rob out all the boxes. And of course, when they get in there, they're going to take the nectar and the uncapped but cured nectar that's close to being capped first, before they start ripping and tearing at anything that's capped. The key to the technique that I chose, and it was circumstantial, is that I knew that night it was going to get cold. It went from 65 to 68 degrees down to 42 at night. When that condition was present, for the twilight hours I let them rob the boxes out. And then 
first thing in the morning, it was 42 degrees. I went and got the cart from the yard and I rolled it back into the garage and closed the doors. The accomplished thing that occurred is that they cleaned all the nectar out but left me capped honey. We went back through the frames and pulled the ones that are capped and can bring them in and spin them out or do crush and strain. Everything else is cleaned out, ready to go. I don't have to worry about it. I can store those. There were a couple frames that I didn't particularly like. There wasn't enough to bother with, but they had some capping on them. And Sharon and I discussed what we were going to do with those. And ultimately what we did was roll them out to the farthest corner of our property away from the hives and leave them out on warm sunny days. And the bees ripped them apart. Took all the storage out of it and left us with clean comb. One of the things very key to this is during periods where there's not a lot of nectar flow available, this could incite robbing in your world. Now I know other beekeepers, Lady Simone is the, the pinnacle example, that open feed all the time. But one of the things I know is that when we took the boxes off of our hives, we put top feeders on every one of them, man lake feeders, and we fed every single hive. So bees are being fed at the hive, but they're also out foraging and they found this resource. When this resource was sitting out in the yard, we did not find that incited robbing in the apiary. Neither did the cold night experiment that we did. So both of these things worked fine as intended, as planned. A lot of thought went into whether we should do this or not, right? Because you don't want to incite robbing. Now the downside to this and the knock against all this open feeding is that whatever's going on in your boxes is being redistributed to all of your colonies. In my estimation, my personal experience and my personal opinion on this, I don't really find this as a challenge. I know that for good hygiene, thou shall not do that. You always put your honey boxes back on the same hive and you should be marking them and all that. I don't think big operations do this. And yes, I try to extract my honey and take the boxes that are extracted and put them back on the colonies for cleaning up any remnants that didn't get spun out. And I put this box back on the same stack. But sometimes you lose track. And other times things change in your configuration. And that's not even something you can do. I don't fuss too much about this. If I had a colony that had, say, European fowl brood or K-wing or any of that stuff going on, you could bet that I would be a little more vigilant about this but I don't have any of that going on. I don't have any mite impacts and huge fest, fest, festering hives or anything like that. But if I did, I would pay more attention to this. And I have yet to ever see a collapse of my entire operation, as somebody might surmise, from doing any of this type of feeding and or robbing, which is 
a, a style of forage, I would call it. Now, one of the common questions I get is about storage of this comb. What if you had honey and you wanted to keep it? What if you don't want to extract it? What if you want to put it back on the bees next season? What do you do with it? Well, that's an it depends. There's two primary things that I would worry about from a honeycomb standpoint, not brood nest, honeycomb. One is if you have hive beetles and they lay, they could potentially get in some sort of mode where the hive beetles are emerging and wrecking everything you have. The defense against that is to freeze your comb, but you need to have a chest freezer and a lot of people don't have that. One tactic or strategy that you could do is leave the boxes on until the world freezes and then go out on one day when it's really super cold and the bees are all down into the nest light the smoker crack the thing open bees not going to be happy to see you and you're going to do a little bit of harm by breaking it open on a freezing cold day to do this but you could pop that box off and it will be frozen a la nature style and then We'll talk about storage in a minute. The other thing you could do is put it in a freezer. One thing you should not do is put it in a plastic bag and put it aside somewhere because that's going to cause the second problem. We talked about hot beetles. It's going to be pests. It'll be bugs. It'll be mice. It'll be anything that's hungry that sees that as food and shelter. If you take a bunch of boxes with any remnants of honey and you store them somewhere in your house, in your garage, in your shed, it is highly likely, especially if you stack them up and cover them, that something will find their way in. How do I know this? Yeah, of course. <laughs> I have holes in some of my equipment where the bees or, or where the mice have chewed their way through the woodenware and got in and made a nest. And when they're in operating in on your comb, you almost have to throw a lot of that away. They'll physically create a nest and eat the honey for the winter. So how do I get around this? I do what I said, which is I get all of the resources out of the comb that I plan to store. And when it gets cold, I set the boxes in a space stacked up with air moving through them. I stand them on end and I leave two inches of space and I set the next one and two inches and the next one and the next one. And I might stack them five or six in a row and then I'll stack a bunch on top of them, staggering them and a bunch on top of them. And I leave them stored in my breezeway against the wall. Now, I don't know what kind of storage area you have or whether this is viable, but this is where personal preference comes in as to how you're going to do this. Some people pull all the frames out and they make racks and they hang the frames from some place. You could do that too. That's a great way to keep the pests out and it leaves air and so on. Now we're talking about honeycomb storage, but if you had anything that had brood reared in it, let's say that the bees crossed the divide. They came out of the brood nest and on some occasion they came up and they laid some 
develop some brood in one of your honey boxes. The bees that pupated in the cells there are going to have left cocoons and feces and all the stuff that goes with rearing bees in comb cells. That is food. That is food for the wax moth. And if you just leave that sitting somewhere in a box stacked in a garage, the wax moth will get through the tiniest cracks and go through and deposit and grow and chew and destroy your comb and potentially your woodenware. Trust me with this, if you leave anything that had brood in it in comb by the time you come back, especially if you forget it at certain times, it will get totally destroyed. Air, light, and maybe application of uh, different products are your best defense against that type of pest. So if you had brood comb and you did the same thing that I talked about a moment ago, which is set your boxes on end so the air can blow through from the bottom or tops of the frames and you put them somewhere where light comes in, like an open breezeway that I have, which is a covered area with a concrete floor and it's cold at the time, you, you know, the wax moth is not operational when it's cold then you should be okay to leave those sit until the weather warms up. If you want to stack them somewhere in a closed space, a shed, a garage, or something, maybe your basement, you do run the risk of mice getting in them, but you can protect them against wax moth by using Paramoth. Paramoth Flakes or Paramoth The Brand is something that you could buy in the bee catalogs, safe, you have to follow the instructions. You close the space off, you put the power moth in, and it creates a vapor that the moths will not live in. This is not the same thing as moth balls that you might be familiar with from your youth and your grandparents had in their drawers to keep the moth from eating your clothing. That stuff is highly toxic and not suitable for use with bees. You have to specifically use products that are labeled for honeybee and follow the label because the label is the law. One thing about power moth that a lot of beekeepers don't follow is that power moth requires you to refresh the product during the season. It only lasts so long and then it dissipates and you have to go in and add another dose of it. I won't tell you how to use it because like a mite treatment or something else, it is imperative that you follow the instructions to get the right result from it. Now, one last product to consider to use, but do understand that the label is the law. And in some places, let's just say California, you're not allowed to use it. It's not registered. The product's called Zentari. Zentari is Bacillus thuringiensis. And it's a rather unique product in that you mix it with water and just like something you would spray in a spray bottle, you spray it all over your comb. And when the water dries out, it leaves the BT, 
bacillus thuringiensis, deposited on the comb. And if a wax moth comes through and starts to ingest the comb, eating the food that's within, it will ingest the Bt and that will kill the wax moth. It might get a little purchase on your comb, but it's not going to go through and ravage everything that you have because it's going to be detrimental to the wax moth and kill the larva stage. Zentari was out of favor for a long period of time. You could buy it over the internet at Amazon unregistered, and some people did that. Um, Kevin moment. Yeah, tried it when it was illegal. I know it was the exact same stuff because I got it from someone who was a beekeeper. Uh, it works great. It's something you could use and it is effective. And I tried it because I wanted to be able to say that thing that I just said, which is it, it is an effective product. End of Kevin moment. Zentari did not go out of service for that period of time because it wasn't any good. It went out of service because the company couldn't afford to re-register it with the government. That's been righted. Recently, they brought it back onto the market. Recently, I want to say within the last year, year and a half. And if you look in the B catalogs, you can see that it's advertised again and you can buy it from the manufacturer. So storage of comb, I probably have not done this the perfect justice because everybody's situation is rather unique. One thing that I will say is I'm not an advocate for excess space. And this is a temptation that new beekeepers have and even seven veterans do this. You have a full box of honey and you think, well, why isn't that good for the bees? I'm just going to leave it there. I say nay, nay. <laughs> And here's the reason why. If you think about the energy of a colony in the wintertime, depending on how the size of the colony is, they can generate as much heat as, illustratively, a small light bulb. And as such, they do give off heat, and they're in an envelope of heat that comes right around the bees. And they're not heating the interior, but they can use some of that heat to heat the comb, to keep their space warm, and also heat what surrounds them. And so as they move up into honey storage above them, any heat that collects gets captured by the honey that's in storage right above them. And it reflects back to them, but it also helps them to get through the honeysickles. Imagine, if you will, where you have two deeps, the bees are in the bottom box, it's now in the heart of winter, and they start to move up into the second box, and they're warming the honey above them, and it's collecting under the inner cover. That's a viable thing. That's a real viable thing. But if there's a honey super above it, you're thinking, great, I just gave them all that food. One, they'll never eat that food. It's excess they will never consume it ever. So you're not doing them a favor by providing an overabundance of food. They're not going to starve if they had 60 to 80 pounds down in the brood nest. And the second thing is all the heat coming off the colony is passing through the top deep and going up into, because heat rises, 
that honey super which is barren, no man's land, that serves no purpose for the bees. This is why when we started out this conversation, made the comment that you're best to bring the size of the hive equipment down to the size of the colony. It helps them to thermoregulate through winter. It's beneficial for them. I hope this has been useful. It's just me riffing on a concept. I had a conversation with my twin about how this all works the other day. We recorded something at the racetrack and the recording was a little kludgy. So I think it was better and more concise for me to regurgitate what we talked about in this manner. But um, I don't know whether I struck the right note. If you had questions, if I confused you, if you do it differently, I would love to hear. Kevin at bkcorner.org. Let me know what you're thinking about how you do this. I'd be fascinated to hear it. And if there's anything I missed or you go, you're nuts, Kevin. That's just, that doesn't make any sense to me. And here's why. I am so open to learning. That's the whole point of this dialogue of two beekeepers. Have a conversation. Me talking to you and you writing back to me. I love this. This dialogue. That's the whole reason this show exists. Topic number two. I call this one getting warmer. You know, when you think about things that you do as a beekeeper every day, every once in a while, you look at something knowing a little something in the background and you always wonder, should you have tried something a little bit different? You know, do the Fleetwood Mac thing and go your own way. Back in 2012, 2013, Billy Davis came to town the late Billy Davis from Virginia. And one of the things that they talked about was warm way beekeeping. I know of warm way beekeeping through one of the talks that I do when I discuss running a national hive. A national hive, one of the hives they use in the United Kingdom, for example, is a square box, unlike the oblong box that we use for Langstroth. And when you set the frames in it, you could set them to run north to south or east to west is the best way to describe it. And if you think about our hives in the Langstroth Manor running north to south, consider if you switched them perpendicular to the way that they run now. Air coming in the front of the Langstroth hive, if the frames were switched 90 degrees, would hit the front one but would not go past that where today when it comes in, it goes in between all the seams and the air is able to pass up through all of the frames. So why not design a Langstroth hive that runs in a warm way? What would it take to make the conversion and why would you want to do that? What would be the benefits of considering that option? If you were starting from scratch and didn't know any better and wanted to manufacture your equipment, could you do that with today's current designs? The actual, the actual answer is, yeah, it, it probably could be done with a fairly quick modification if you are a smidge handy with the table saw. A couple quick adjustments. The first thing you would need to do is shorten the bottom board. 
You do not need the landing that's built into today's bottom board. So you would trim that off so that the dimension of the bottom board would only be as long as the box. Now, of course, you need to make adjustments as to where the bees enter. So on the end you just trimmed, you would close off the gap that is created so that the bees could not come in where they used to. And you would have to open up the gap on one of the sides. Here you could use your own ingenuity to determine how much of the wood to cut back on the side so that the bees could go in through the side of the bottom board instead of what we would normally consider the front. Once you have your bottom board zipped up that way, you realize that you're missing one piece. And this is where conventional stacking and storing and other things might have you try to engineer something that you would figure out how this would work. But where I'm going is on the side of the colony where the bees would come in now, the side, the long side, you would want to have some sort of landing. And by my sensibility, you could just tack some sort of shim to the side of the landing board. Create a place, and it doesn't have to be that big, like the conventional one that gives you, what, uh, four inches by nine inch pad. You just need a three quarter inch or one inch place. You could somehow engineer a board that you would put on. But now think about when you're storing all your stuff in your space, you have this appendage sticking out. So you would want to make it so you could screw it on and screw it off. That's my way of thinking. Or you could leave it that way and not worry about storage. Again, this is just reimagining how we might do this. The last part to think about is what do you do with your hive stands? Most people run on a rail, some people run on concrete blocks, others build dedicated single-purpose hive stands for each of their hives. A typical hive stand, if I can imagine what one would look like, comes up higher on the sides so that the hive sits down inside the hive stand. You can imagine what I'm talking about, right? And obviously if we flip things around, then the bees are coming in and out of the area that's blocked. So along with modifying your bottom board to run the warm way, you would need to flip your design or change up how you set your cement blocks or close your rails in because you're going to turn your hive so that the side is actually the front. Now, what are the benefits to doing this? Why would we want to go your own way here? Well, if I think about it, primarily as a beekeeper working the bees, we typically stand behind the short side or come and favor the left side if you're right-handed, right side if you're left-handed, and work the bees where we pull the frames naturally by the ears up and out of the hive. Imagine, if you would, that the hive was turned 90 degrees and the bees are coming and going out the other long side away from you. And you could start like a book from the frame closest to you and work your way forward. How nice would that be? 
That would be a great way to work a hive. As it is with our current design, we can turn and stand on that side, but the bees are coming and going on our left. And sometimes you're a little close enough to the entrance that the bees would see you and the guards are going to come and see what you have going on. Here, the guards are on the opposite side of where you're standing. Now, the other benefit of this is what the British folks do with their national hives. They have a square box so they could turn the frames the hot, the, what is it, warm or cold way. And they believe that air coming in, especially in cool winters and the damp environment that they have in the United Kingdom, it doesn't flow in and through the center of the frames, all the gaps and come up in. It hits the face of the frame that is perpendicular to the entrance or parallel to the entrance because of this change and the air doesn't flow through. Now, is that a good thing or a bad thing? Thermodynamics, I have no idea whether we want it, but I know in wintertime when that cold gust comes and it comes through the entrance, it's one of the main reasons why we close the entrance down because you don't want the air flowing up and into the cluster. I think from a weight standpoint and from a natural picking frames up and or, and this is the last benefit I'll talk about, imagine if you will that you pick up a box and it's a loaded honey super, or it's a box full of brood comb and a, and a full size colony. If the box is turned the long way, meaning the long dimension is away from you, when you pick it up, there's more weight out in front of you, which puts more stress. Your arms are closer together and you are carrying more weight out in front of you. As a human being, we're not designed optimally to do that. Where if the box is turned and your right hand and your left hand are on the long ends, and you have it in closer to your body, it's easier on your back, easier lifting. And so working a colony from that standpoint of the back, when the long way setup is adjusted, the hive is sitting 90 degrees, I think that would be a benefit, both in picking up the boxes and extracting frames. You know, maybe in the spring, and this is what drove me to this notion, I'm at the point where I have a lot of bottom boards that are junk. They've run their course, they've run their age. And I'm thinking that I'm going to paint up a bunch of new bottom boards. And I wonder if I want to take a little time in the spring to adjust and try this. Build a couple hives that run the warm way. I'd have to look at my hive stands and see if it would accommodate it. And what I need to build different PVC stands or try something differently temporarily to see how this goes. And one of the questions beyond how would I do working the hives when they're built this way is would I see any tangible benefit for the bees in changing the way the airflow comes into the front entrance of the hive? This is not a new idea. In fact, I know that uh, in Virginia, Billy Davis and friends back in the day, I remember talking, um, the sustainable beekeeping program talked about running hives the warm way. 
but I don't know anybody that does it in practice. So here's a question. If you know anyone who's made these modifications or gone their own way and changed their hives up to run in a warm pattern, fully 90 degree rotation for a Langstroth hive, either you're doing it or you know someone who's doing it and you know how that works, send me a note, kevin at bkcorner.org. I'm really curious to hear what this works like. And I think, I know that I have a couple rod and bottom boards. They've been in service since 2008. And so it's time, they've got to go. And I painted a bunch of bottom, my bottom boards with some paint that I got from my lovely darling wife's aunt a long time ago. It was porch paint. It's green. It looked nice. It was the right color, but it's awful paint. I've painted a lot of things in my lifetime, having a past life as a sign painter and painting sign planks. This is just awful paint. And every year I look at the bottom boards that I painted with this stuff. It's porch paint. It's supposed to be super durable. They look terrible. And I still have some of that paint, which, you know, over time you should get rid of old stuff anyway. I think I'm going to ditch every bit of it and buy fresh, new, maybe even a different color paint and redo some new bottom boards this year. And it might provide the opportunity to go my own way. Kevin at BKCorner.org. If you know anybody, I'd be curious to hear. Topic number three, I called this one, maybe it wasn't me. Recently, we were going through our inventory of honey in reserve. We have a customer who loves stuff that is crystallized. And we're going through and finding stuff that's crystallized that's been sitting around a while in our basement. And we pulled a batch the other day and opened it up just to check it and it's fermented. There's a period of time when I made some creamed honey and I put it up on the shelf and it was really, really great. And then as it sat there in storage, it separated and developed a head above the creamed part that was liquefied and fermented. This is where I get to talk about the fact that when honey crystallizes, part of the crystalline structure presses the water out that's contained within and the excess water can collect at the top of the jar and if the wild yeasts are still present there it would potentially create the environment by which the yeast can ferment the sugars in the liquid part that gets exuded out from the crystallization and it will result in a batch of a bottle of fermented honey. Well, that's what happened. And I made, I'm not even sure if I followed the dice method. This was early days. Um, yeah, I didn't know as much at that time. And I just warmed some honey to melt all the crystals out and inoculated it with creamed honey and put it together down in a cold basement. I did not understand this concept of crystallization exudes water that I just said. And therefore I felt like when this honey crystallized and it had that fermented cap on top of it, it 
I screwed something up and I didn't understand why. Now that I look at the honey from that time period and saw that it crystallized and we pulled the jars out and they had a little bit of fermentation to it, I wonder if when we bottled it, again, back then not knowing anything, maybe it had a little too high of moisture count for whatever the reasons are that that occurs. I was visiting a beekeeper this morning and the beekeeper was spinning out some frames and had it sitting out and it was in the extractor sitting outside of a barn. When I had the conversation about moisture content because the beekeeper is new they were unaware of this. They didn't understand the concept. And it made me think about the stage when I was there and didn't know this. It was raining out. They were spending their honey and it was sitting in the extractor. And if they don't bottle it right away, you could, because it's hygroscopic, absorb moisture. They didn't have a refractometer and they were going to bottle it when they got around to that day. What they did was spun it out and left it sit. They only had a small amount and they had the extractor closed. Well, not to pick on the person, they were doing what they were doing. With the gate closed, so it wouldn't come out, one of the frames was tilted and the corner was getting down in the honey as the extractor basket was spinning and it whipped the honey. You could look down in there, it almost looked like the color of peanut butter. And so the moral of the story here is that honey is going to be wet. And it could potentially, if you bottled it and found it years later, which it crystallized because it's been sitting in a basement, result in honey that is going to ferment. It sets it up to ferment. And so thinking back to my younger, more naive self, I don't know what to do with this honey that we just pulled but I feel absolved that back then, not having the knowledge, the creamed honey that I made was probably because the honey was too wet. It had too high of a moisture count. Now, if you ever wanted to make creamed honey, the answer would be the dice method. In the dice method, they explain to you how to warm the honey, to kill the yeasts, how to dissolve all the crystallization out of it, how to inoculate it, how to store it for the best crystallization so little tiny micro crystals occur and you get a smooth product and so on and if you do it right it averts any of this potential of fermentation so now Sharon and I are having this conversation about what do we do with this honey that has a slightly fermented taste it's not funky but when you open and taste it if you've ever had a lightly fermented honey it's got a little bit of a sour taste We've been eating it. Now, I wonder if you eat this stuff that's fermented, would it give you any gastric distress? So far, the answer is no. I don't mind it having a little sour. I find things to use it for. I make a peanut butter and honey sandwich and I can get by. I don't find it objectionable. Sharon's been putting it in her coffee. And so we'll consume that product. We won't obviously sell it to anybody. But... 
And we know now that when we harvest our honey, we always measure it with a refractometer and put it in the jar at a low moisture level so these things won't happen. And I've made successful batches of creamed honey using the dice method and monitoring the moisture. But it's one of those interesting lessons that just came up recently when we pulled that box and found that this stuff was fermented and I put one and one together and got three. <laughs> because now I understand, it's funny how memory comes, why my creamed honey back then had a problem. I thought it was something to do with the process, but I'm suspecting now that that honey that we bottled at the time, and who knows what we did back in the day when we were spinning and extracting and storing and bottling how we got moisture in but i suspect that was the case and if you ever run across honey that is lightly fermented or fermented maybe some of this conversation will help you have a cue as to do forensics and to avoid it in your future a little bit of a different format for the show just kind of buzzing through a couple topics and getting out of here, but I didn't want to leave without a local hive report. It's October 31st. It's that critical junction of the year. If you follow the program, you understand from August 8th to October 31st is when you build your winter bees by my way of thinking. You feed them, you get your hives fat and happy, and the weather around here has been kind of unusual. It's been 70s. And it got to be 80 degrees the other day. That's unheard of in October. It's such a strange year for weather this year. And fortunate for us, after my situation, it allowed us the opportunity to feed our bees. We pulled all the honey supers off, as I talked about in this episode, and replaced them with top feeders. If I had to go a little bit further, I could potentially put internal feeders if the days are getting into the 60s, but looking out at the forecast come November, it looks like it's going to turn the corner. We're going to be having highs of 50s, lows below 45, and that means the bees are going to start to cluster and get into winter formation. All of the boxes that I want to pull honey supers off are done, and I'm going to do something that I said not to do. There's a couple boxes I think I'm going to leave a few honey supers on. I feel like they're a little light down below. And in looking at the bees, I know that they already have moved up into the center of the box. And so when I talk about this, it comes back to the notion that every single time you have a hive, you have to treat it like a child and do the management practice based on what you observe. So case in point, hive on pad number nine in my local yard has two deeps and two mediums on it. The bees are in the second deep. They're not down in the bottom. And there's honey stored in the box above to make the honey dome. And there's some honey in the top box. If I pulled those two top boxes because of the situation I had this year, the bees would not have enough reserves. And the colony is up into those boxes, meaning they're building brood in the first honey super. It's just the way they went. And so I caught an audible there, and I'm going to leave the honey supers on. And this is what will result. And one of the keys to making this decision. 
the bees are going to work their way up into the honey boxes. That's what's going to happen over winter. The bottom box down below will end up being vacant by the time midwinter comes. That's okay. It's down on the entrance. Air coming in will get into that bottom box, but the bees will be warm and nestled up above in the, in the boxes. The thing that I am going to end up with in the spring is I'm going to have bees up in honey supers. I'm okay with that. I will deal with bees that built brood in honey supers by either cleaning the comb up or what I've done in the past is make all medium hives out of those. I just do a split, pull those boxes off, and run a medium stack instead. I'm not averse to all medium hives. I understand the premise of the weight, which generally doesn't concern me because I can lift boxes. Um, based on my physique, I'm not concerned with that. I don't like all medium boxes because of the nature of frame, top bar, bottom bar, frame, top bar, bottom bar dynamic. And I like contiguous combs. So I really do believe that deep frames are a better way to go. I've learned that dynamic from both my top bar and my lay-ins hive. And that makes me kind of shy away. But there's so many people who run medium hives. I'm not trying to say that's not a good way to go. But in this case, I've chosen to leave the boxes on and I'll deal with it in the spring. For the rest of them, there are two deeps and a feeder. I've left the feeders on if we get a couple warm days, a stretch, I should say, of warm days. I might attempt a little bit more food in November. And what I mean is that I would want enough warm days where they could pull the food down that we give them and process it so it's not wet. I don't want to feed bees on one warm day. Let's say we get a 70 degree day somewhere in November and have them pull it down and store it in a cell only to turn cold and they don't get to dry it out and process it to be food. So I would look for a run. But chances are we're done. After this three weeks of above normal temperatures, 60, 65, 70, all the way up to 80 for three weeks. We've been feeding the bees. They pulled it all down. And my guess is they've dried it out and they're able to get it set up for winter in the last days that they had of this temperature. I have two hives at Valley Crest. Let's turn and talk about them. There's honey supers on them. We went to go pull the honey supers. I would have assumed that in the cold weather, cool temperature that we went there, the bees would go down into the bottom boxes. But there's so many bees from a population standpoint in those hives that they were lock, stock, and barrel up into the honey super, just hanging out. We have to go back there with a fume board. I want to get out of the situation that I described earlier. We have two deeps full of bees and a honey super up above, which is no man's land. We're going to use a fume board, evacuate the bees out, pull that off, and force all the bees down into the two deeps. They've got plenty of weight because they've done a really good job at packing in. And we'll harvest those two boxes here in November and December. We wanted some form of a fall harvest. We're going to get them off of these two hives, which is a welcome thing because it was a bust at home. 
with all the goldenrod that was available in our neighborhood. We got nothing. And it it makes me think about goldenrod as, and asters as a plant. Just because you see it doesn't mean it's the right kind. I'm reminded all the time, the goldenrod you see is actually golden rods. There's tons of different variations on the plants and some of them work and some of them don't. And you have no idea by looking at a field of yellow, whether it's a good kind or a bad kind. For whatever reason, and probably because I didn't feed the bees due to my situation, they consumed whatever they got from the goldenrod this year, if they got it. And there was no excess storage and we didn't pull any uh, or minimal amount of honey from our boxes. So I have just a couple more to-do items. I will wait till it gets colder. And when it's colder, I will pull all the feeders, top feeders, man lake feeders off of our hives and button everything up. And I have two hives that I need to put entrance reducers on. I haven't gotten there yet, and I should have. Uh, when you get those nights where it's 40 degrees, like we've been seeing, even though it's been 60 during the day, it does go down into the 40s. We saw some 30s, and we have our first frost warning on the horizon. But you need to put those entrance reducers on. I'm probably a little bit late. need to make sure that I don't have any mice in there, and lest I close off the mice inside the colony. The last thing I want to talk about is every year it seems that if you don't pay attention, you will have a hive meet its demise in late summer. Bee Informed Partnership talks about winter death losses, a focus that beekeepers have, but a lot of beekeepers lose hives late in the summer and early in the spring. If I look back at my records, there was a time when I converted my top bar hive from an extra long width to a medium width. And I put bees in it and I had trouble getting it going for a year or two, but then it took off. And that colony, which I do not do swarm prevention on, has been running for years. I noticed this week that the colony is no longer in there. The box is empty. I find that sad in a way, because it had a several year run, produced honey for me, and it was just fun to work that hive. They built all the frames out all the way through. They've maintained a really nice colony. There's been no disease. They've been treatment free. I think one year, first couple years, I put Apovar treatments in it. But other than that, I've not been treating this colony. And it's had a good run. My suspicion is that whatever the queen was in there, faltered and the colony met its demise during time when I was having my issue and had I caught it I could have requeened it and kept it going but the fact of the matter is I actually wanted this hive to go south there was a time and this was a long time ago that a friend of ours was doing a floor in their house oak floor and they received lumber to put the floor in and they had like an extra case of it that's what that hive was built out of it's not even three quarter inch lumber it's half inch lumber 
I've insulated the hive with foam in order to bolster it, but because that colony has been in service for so long, some of the woodenware is a little tattered. The top of the roof has a rotted section, and actually it was waiting for some point to, for the hive to succumb so I could take it out of service and rehabilitate the woodenware on it. I love the form factor of the hive, and one of the things I want to do is save all the comb that's in there prevented from the from wax moth damage. What I have in reserve is a hive that I built a long time ago from some furniture I saw along the road called This End Up. If you're an old codger like me, I'm not really that old, but this is furniture from trendy 90s, I think. It was crate furniture. It was made out of really heavy lumber. It had this industrial chic look to it. And I found this piece sitting along the road that I knew when I cut it up, I could make the perfect slabs and sides for a top bar. Yes, work is looking for me. That's what all that dinging is. They can wait. <laughs> Sorry, that's funny. You know, this is my life. Like, this is everybody's life, isn't it? Squirrel, you have messages that pop up and go ding and you look at your phone or ding and you look at your computer or ding and you look in the notification tray and you cannot find a moment of peace and i'm ignoring that work from patrick at work or that message anyway where was i i cut this piece of furniture up and made it in the exact same dimension as the current top bar that i have in service so I'm pretty confident that I can just transfer the frames into that box while I put the other one in. And in spring, I'll load it with new bees. And I'm kind of looking forward to that. That box has been sitting in reserve for years. I really didn't think that my top bar in its current configuration would hang on for so long. But it's done really well. And so thank you, all Maria Kondo. Thank you for your service, top bar and the honey that you provided, and the home that you provided for our bees. And know that the lineage of all the frames and work that the bees built will be repurposed in the spring for the other top bar hive, which I will put into service and we'll give that a try. So local hive report, yeah, things are okay. I, I'm not highly confident. I don't see a lot of really super strong colonies. But like any other time, even if a quarter a third of the bees make it through i will rebuild we didn't do queen rearing this year we're going to do queen rearing in spades the, the next year anything that survives we will keep them going to try and keep those genetics it makes me nervous because in the treatment-free experiment we're doing this is really trusting that the bees will find their way well we're going to learn my initial premise was I know, treatment-free, you're supposed to just kind of let them be, but I don't know that I believe in that. I wanted to do managed treatment-free, meaning I'm keeping an eye on the bees and making sure that they're in a good way. And I always want to keep fresh, new, vigorous queens. Well, I didn't do that this year. And so I run the risk of losing more bees. When I say treatment-free... I just am not putting synthetic pesticides and things like that in it, but I am managing the bees. And part of the management to me is to keep young 
highly high quality mated queens in through a queen mating program done at the optimal time of year. I think if you pay attention to that, as we've been saying in the last couple episodes, then that kind of takes care of itself. We shall see, come spring, how that works, but it's coming to the point where I will spend the last days going into my hives for the season. We'll see what November brings. Local Hive Report, check. Let's close this thing down and we'll talk about a couple things before we head on out. To close the episode, I want to check the box on a few odds and ends that are lingering in the ether. It was nice taking in the Northwest New Jersey Beekeepers Association meeting the other night. There's just something special about sitting in a room with beekeepers and shooting the breeze about beekeeping things. And if you have the opportunity, please try to make it in person. There's just not enough face-to-face meetings going on with beekeepers these days. I don't know what it is about people not wanting to participate in that style of meeting anymore. I know life is busy, folks, but come on. The second thing floating to the surface is about artificial intelligence. I'm actively learning some of the basic underpinnings of it as part of my job, and it's both enthralling and scary at the same time. Since I think about beekeeping on a regular basis, I've been trying to consider what impact it will have on the information available to us mortal humans. I will only say that I suspect things are going to change. I can see a time where information will be a prompt away. A prompt being the formal manner in which you ask a question to generative AI. Our world, along with the world of beekeeping, is going to be wholly different in just a few short years. In my estimation, this is on par with the invention of the internet, and I would consider it Internet 2.0. Not only is the information available at your fingertips, Internet 1.0, but it will be digestible in a manner that we can never have considered. Like the news sign-offs from the 60s, I'll give you one of those. You heard it here first, ladies and gentlemen. The whole world of interaction about information for beekeeping is about to change. The last thing I'm going to share is that I'm considering a 180 degree turn and I'm leaning towards staying home in January. I don't know. I've been contemplating attending the conferences down south come January, but I'm sensing a lack of enthusiasm on my part. And maybe I got my fill of Congress content after the excellent Northern Lights Conference in Canada. But truth be told, there are a few practical matters that are knocking around in my head that keep me on the side of stay home, Kevin. The first thing, and it's usually the first thing on a lot of folks list, is a nagging feeling about the money being saved by skipping the trip. It feels like I could parlay that into some of the equipment I've been dreaming about for the podcast. I try to be careful on what I spend for this hobby. 
And this year, I added additional expenses to the overall budget when I opted to pay out of pocket for the managed mentoring program I'm hosting on the side. I have a few things on the wish list for show production that are rather pricey. And well, maybe this is a way to reconcile the budget to get the microphones that I spoke of in the last episode or a video setup that I am researching. These are all kind of poor mouth problems, but I classify, classify myself as in the saver splurge category. I'm not one to spend money frivolously. Frivolously, that's the right word, isn't it? But when I do, I consider whatever I buy an investment and it has to meet my demanding requirements. Yeah, case in point, you don't want to know how many years I've been saving to buy a full frame mirrorless camera. Because if I buy one, I know it's the last one I'll ever own. And I want to make sure that I do not buy something that ends up disappointing me. I love my current Canon camera. I use it on a weekly basis and that's no joke. But even this weekend shooting at the races, the picture quality is not what I see coming out of the professional sports photographers and I'm all for that. Yeah, I digress. So it's pretty much a lock that you'll find me at home coming the first week in January. And as I think ahead, I want to see if I can plan something fun to do during the window of time so that I'm not lamenting that I didn't go when that window is upon me. As funny as it sounds, I think I'm going to finally consider the Hive Tool holster design that I've been kicking around for at least two years. Hey, do you do this? This is what I mean. If I set that goal right now, then I know I have the ramp up window to the activity of the date of manufacturing that thing. I've been contemplating this high tool holder design for years now. Here and there, at various moments in time, I put my brain cycles on rummaging through the requirements as I'm out working in the bee yard. So when it comes to be that time, I would have all the design requirements at the ready. Now, if I decide on the declaration here and now, then I am mentally committing to the date and I could set into motion the next actions that would put me up for success when it comes to that fabrication day. I do this all the time in life. You know, I have another play to demonstrate that thought. I have frozen cherries double bagged in the freezer to make mead with. That's also a parallel activity in a ramp up window for making mead during the Thanksgiving break when I know I'll have a couple days to do it or if need be the holidays. Yeah, who knew this was going to manifest into some small little topic, but Lately, there's another example at play. My bottom boards need attention. Said that before. One really stupid thing I've been processing, which <laughs> is only enthralling to me alone. Yeah, this is a Kevin moment. A scene in Dirty Dancing just popped in my head. We're going to end the year with the Pachanga. You know the scene. 
where Neil thinks it's such a progressive thing to make the big dance at the end of the year, the Pachenga, and Johnny just rolls his eyes. <laughs> Kevin moment. Here's my Pachenga moment. I'm thinking of painting my bottom boards black. Kapow! Isn't that? <laughs> this is where you roll your eyes. That's exciting, Kevin. Color complementing bottom boards. Hmm, that's pretty good. But I say to you, black bottom boards will create a nice color complement and balance to the grays and golds that I use today for my hot boxes. So it makes me happy. I suppose this is the point where I say to you, if you ever had the opportunity to watch me from afar someday, and you're observing me pondering something from a far-off perch, chances are I'm rummaging through some stupid thing for beekeeping just like this. Ever plotting and asking myself, what are you going to do today, Pinky? <laughs> okay, Elvis has officially left the building. If you made it this far, thank you for your fortitude. And the only thing I have to say is, like our beloved bees, when beekeepers go together, we accomplish great things. Thanks for listening, everybody, and be well. Happy Halloween. <laughs>